0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: It also feels like rural is somewhat of a proving ground for whether or not our democracy can survive. Because I think in rural places, and mine, Athens, Tennessee included, I think rural places still have this muscle memory for what it means to gather together and work together in a civic kind of way, in the civic commons. We can't afford to lose that muscle memory or our connection to one another, because if we do, then we're even more isolated, then we're even more left out in the cold or overlooked, right? So we've got to keep cultivating this muscle that we have, this practice we have of coming together in rural communities. Like there's only one library, one school system, one baseball field, one courthouse, you know, one main street, those community assets are super important. And it's where a lot of really key conversations are happening still, even in the midst of pandemic and even in the midst of social distancing, a lot of the assets that we have are are people assets, relationship assets, and rural places instinctively are gravitating toward the commons. So
0: let's let's build on that. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is expanding access to justice in rural communities. Like most Americans, folks living in rural areas frequently face civil legal problems. And those problems often involve life impacting issues such as housing, family, employment, or consumer issues. According to LSC's 2017 justice gap report, three out of four rural households experienced at least one civil legal problem the prior year, including almost a quarter, 23% that experienced six or more problems. Now, Rural Americans often face these problems with little or no access to legal assistance. The lawyers just aren't where the problems are. Around 20% of the nation's population resides in rural communities, yet only 2%, just 2% of lawyers serve these communities. And I'm not talking about 2% serving uh, people living in poverty, I'm talking about 2% serving everybody, rich or poor in rural areas. And access to a lawyer is even harder for rural Americans living in poverty. Rural America has a consistently higher poverty rate than many metropolitan areas. On average, 16.4%, that's the poverty population in rural counties, compared to 12.9% in urban counties. Currently, about one in three rural counties have poverty rates above 20%. For some populations, like single mothers with children, the rural poverty rate is close to 44%, almost half. In the aggregate, nearly 10 million rural residents have family incomes below 125% of the federal poverty level and are therefore financially eligible for legal aid provided by programs that are funded by Legal Services Corporation. According to LSC's Justice Gap Report, less than one quarter of low-income rural Americans reached out for legal help to deal with these civil legal problems, no matter how important they were. And over 86% of these problems received no or inadequate help for their legal problems. Now, that's a pretty sobering backdrop to our conversation today. The good news is to talk about how we can expand access to justice in rural areas, I'm joined by three experts, who spent a good part of their time trying to do just that, that is expand access to justice in rural areas. Whitney Kimball Coe is a vice president and director of national programs for the Center of Rural Strategies. Whitney directs the work of the National Rural Assembly, a program that brings together rural leaders and advocates from every region. Her work draws on national public interest organizations, funders, and policymakers to inform public policy and private investment in rural people and places. Her focus on building civic courage in communities is directly tied to her own life, her active participation in her hometown of Athens, Tennessee. Courtney Kloos graduated from West Virginia University College of Law in May 2017. She served as a Rural Summer Legal Corps Fellow in 2016 with Legal Aid of West Virginia. Based in their Lewisburg office, Courtney worked to secure safety, stability, and economic and educational support for low income children in the Lewisburg area. Courtney now serves as a full time staff attorney with Legal Aid of West Virginia. Rebecca Rapp serves on three committees of LSC's Board of Directors. Rebecca is the General Counsel and Chief Privacy Officer of Ascendium Education Group, a philanthropy and federal loan guarantor in Madison, Wisconsin. Ascendium is committed to increasing access to and success in post-secondary education and training. Rebecca previously served as a Dane County Circuit Court Judge and Assistant Attorney General at the Wisconsin Department of Justice in Madison. Rebecca is known for promoting technology and innovation to increase the reach of pro bono legal services, and is involved with a project to provide legal help to technical colleges around Wisconsin, particularly in rural areas. The American Bar Association honored her with its 2021 Pro Bono Publico Award. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Earlier this week, LSC launched its uh, Rural Justice Task Force, thanks in large measure to Rebecca Rapp's vision and leadership, the task force, like other LSC initiatives that have come before it, will bring together an interdisciplinary group of thought leaders, including legal aid and human service providers, business and philanthropic leaders, educators, court professionals, and members of the judiciary to raise awareness about the rural justice gap and solutions to it. Closing the justice gap is difficult everywhere, but rural and remote areas present unique challenges. So I'd like to start off our conversation by doing a quick go around and ask everyone what you see as the greatest barrier to justice in rural areas. And Whitney, why don't we start with you?
1: Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Ron, for having us on here. I'm Whitney Kimball Coe. I'm with the Center for Rural Strategies. And the first question you're asking, (laughs) is a big one and an important one. And I think really can set the context for the conversation we need to have today, this idea about what is the greatest barrier to justice. And I would say not in just rural places, but everywhere that the greatest barrier is this collective misunderstanding of what justice means and who it's for, you know, is, is justice only for those with enough money and power to access it? Or is justice, a promise and something that belongs to all of us, regardless of our zip code, regardless of our socioeconomic condition. And I think the challenge then with rural, you know, is that we've got to reevaluate rural America writ large, reevaluate its value and understand that everyone matters. Um, I think the challenge before us is really to just recast justice as an essential piece of of a flourishing democracy, a flourishing nation. You know, I think we're all diminished when when justice is accompanied by some sort of scarcity mindset.
0: Thanks, Whitney. I think that's a great point. I participated in a meeting of the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable last week, and they asked me to define what meaningful access to justice is. And my definition was really access for everybody in America to the assistance they need to actually receive the rights and benefits that the Constitution, federal and state statutes provide. If Congress passes a law and says you're entitled to X, Well, you should be able to uh, get the assistance you need to get X. Uh, It doesn't uh, do for uh, Congress or state legislatures to create rights that are meaningless because uh, nobody understands uh, what those rights mean or uh, that are out of reach because you don't have a lawyer to help you get them. Uh, Those sorts of promises are really uh, pretty empty. So, Courtney, what's the biggest barrier you see uh, in West Virginia?
2: So I think to bounce a little bit off of Whitney has said, one of the biggest problems that I see in West Virginia, which really is largely a rural state, where 55 counties, and I would say the majority of those would be considered rural, and really, compared to other areas, all of those counties. So compared to what Whitney said or bouncing off of that, I think in a lack of access to resources or really just a lack of resources generally in some of these counties is a huge problem. Similarly to what Whitney said, I think sometimes when when clients look around and they don't see those resources, they feel like they don't matter, that their problems aren't important, and that there's not really solutions to their problems. So when I talk about those resources we're lacking, sometimes that's as simple as transportation. Do we have a way to get people to court? Do we have a way to get people to even appointments? Can they get to social services? Can they get to attorneys? That's a huge issue I see, even access to internet is something that I see quite a bit with clients. I'll try to meet with somebody and they'll say, actually, that's not really going to work for me. I'm at home and I have no self-service or I don't have Wi-Fi, or I, I can't do anything. So those very basic resources that I think many of us um, may take for granted just are, are lacking in those rural areas. And I do think that those those kinds of issues leave some of these rural communities feeling overlooked. And that's something that I think really in my practice, I try to combat and do my very best to connect people to what they're, what they're sorely lacking as much as I can.
0: Thanks Courtney. Your answer, actually, both parts of your answer, uh, sort of underscore the promise and limitations of technology on one hand, Transportation is hard, whether you're in a rural area or even an urban area, you know, getting to court, maybe having to leave your job or bringing in uh, children can be a real barrier to uh, making a court appearance and the pandemic and before the pandemic, people living in rural areas to the extent that they can make a court appearance via video is, is a great opportunity. But if you don't have cell service uh, because you're in a rural area that uh, doesn't have it, or maybe you're in an urban area, but you don't have the resources to to buy bandwidth and your kids are doing their homework in uh, McDonald's parking lots so that they can uh, get internet access, what looks promising can be illusory if uh, you can't actually get the resources to use it. Rebecca, what's your perspective on barriers?
3: First, uh, I just want to echo everybody else's comments. Just thanks for having me um, here. I'm very grateful and honored uh, to be here on the podcast, but also with Courtney and Whitney in particular. And definitely when Whitney and Courtney were talking, I was shaking my head. Yeah, that too. Um, But if I had to pick one thing, I would just say the lack of attorneys in some of these rural areas. There's obviously the piece of it. If you don't have attorneys or legal professions there to help people, it gets more difficult to help people. But I think there's a few other layers, too, that need to be thought about. One is most people don't know necessarily that their stressors are legal issues with legal solutions. And then even the folks who may suspect that they have some legal problems may feel so removed from the justice system, and it may not have any part in their lives that I think not having attorneys in communities that are part of those communities really exacerbates that distance um, between people and the justice system that they should be able to rely on. I also think that it's harder to create a legal community and bring attorneys into legal communities if there's no attorneys there to start. So you think about um, the mentorship opportunities, even having other attorneys to bounce ideas off and things. So I think it sort of exacerbates the problem and makes it more difficult long term. And then finally, um, it's this notion of a justice vacuum. I think if if you have areas that don't have any attorneys, um, there's really no check on some of the institutions that serve people. An example I just gave at the, the task force launch, if you think about the landlord that goes completely unchecked and can do whatever he or she wants to the tenants and get by with it, well, then he or she may do that. If there's a landlord that knows that 10 or even, you know, 20% of of the tenants are going to be represented, maybe doesn't know which ones, or has gotten an adverse result in one case, maybe they will be a little more circumspect going forward. So I think there's that multiplier effect that really has impacts beyond just individual attorneys, seeing individual clients in some of these communities.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. Your your point about the, the literal lack of attorneys in rural areas, and particularly some rural areas, is really well taken. There are literally dozens and maybe hundreds of counties throughout America where there are literally no lawyers other than maybe the county attorney or the, the judge for that county. Uh, and the judge, uh, there may be a judge that serves several counties. So this is a, a real problem. And of course, the problem is only worse when you look at the, the attorneys who are available to people who don't have the resources to pay let's dive into this a little further. Whitney, at LSC, we know there are linkages between the employment, housing, and healthcare challenges facing rural Americans and civil legal issues. From your perspective, what are the needs of rural individuals, legal or otherwise? How, how have they changed since you moved back to Athens, uh, Tennessee? I think that was in the last decade. And how do these needs show up in your work?
1: It's such a, um, a layered, <laughs> I, have such, I feel like I have such a layered response. You know, I think what rural people need is similar to what everyone needs. We all need enough economy to keep the lights on and food on the table. We need access to things that keep us sane and engaged in the life of our communities. And those things are, you know, like quality health care, broadband, housing, child care, We need the arts and culture so that we can know ourselves better and make meaning of our lives together. And of course, we need access to affordable and quality legal systems. And and then on top of all of that, we all need a good night's sleep and, and a dose of hope in the morning. So I think I think just naming those things as essential parts of all of our lives, right? Whether you're rural or urban or wherever you live, these are the things that that you need to participate in our democracy and in community. But 60 million of us do live in rural America and our needs are somewhat urgent. Those things that I listed feel more urgent perhaps. And one in three of our kids are food insecure. 26 million of us don't have access to broadband or the internet. You know, more of our mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters are dying at a higher rate because they can't access a hospital or they can't reach a medical provider in time. But I want to say it's not just a rural problem, it's an us problem, it's a national problem because we are all bound up in kind of this. What what did Martin Luther King say? An inescapable network of mutuality. This is not just something that rural needs to be tackling on its own. This is something that we all have to be tackling. So You were asking about when I moved back to Athens, right before I moved back to Athens, I read this article in a major newspaper that was suggesting that the solution to all of these rural urgent needs was to just hand people bus tickets and tell them to, you know, go to the nearest metro area to move or, you know, take themselves to the nearest place of opportunity. And that's really because, you know, we've built a culture and a country that is, Based around population density and um, this centralized, concentrated accumulation of wealth tends to be in cities. So that was the jump in logic that was made. Let's just get all these people to the city. And I remember reading that article and I was like, well, you know, heck, I'll just show them. I'm going to move back home and show them what it means to be part of the life of a place, even with all of those urgent needs that were lacking. I think. Showing rather than telling is another way to usher in kind of real transformation. You know, my town's better off than some other rural places, and it's worse off than others. But we have we do have a high child poverty rate. Right? We have spotty broadband. We have an aging population that's going to need more health care in the decades to come. Um, we lack ubiquitous broadband and, and childcare. It's just a huge piece of it. You know, and our local paper is struggling to print. Just two days a week. So, I mean, that is a reality, but there are just so many other things about what it means to be rural, to live in a rural community, to be tethered to your neighbors, not just in a way that's out of habit or history, but in a way that is kind of life preserving because you lean on one another.
0: Another one of the problems with why doesn't just everybody move is that the folks who will tend to move are the people who have the resources and the initiative to move. Uh, there are people who simply, for a variety of reasons, can't move. And so what you'll end up with are, are the, the people left behind and it will only make the problem worse, not, uh, not better.
1: Absolutely, and who's gonna tend to the things that need tending um, in, in this, what is it? Rural is 80 to 90% of the landscape. In, um, in America, and, and we're the stewards and the tenders of, um, of these places.
0: Courtney, you work directly every day. You have now for five years or so with individuals and families experiencing poverty, some of it deep, multi-generational, persistent. COVID-19 obviously is making matters worse, will likely increase poverty as well as the legal needs of people who are facing poverty. You know, what are you seeing in that regard in, in West Virginia?
2: So unfortunately, we are seeing, I think, a just an overwhelming number of housing cases, eviction issues, people who are just, because of the pandemic, have lost employment, have been laid off, have underlying health conditions that just make it so it's unsafe for them to work right now. Or people who were forced to stop working because they didn't have childcare, or their children weren't going to school in person anymore and they had to stay home. So I think all of those things are kind of multiplying and kind of exacerbating this overwhelming housing issue. I think with the number of evictions in the state, that has been going up. And I think the pandemic kind of brought to light all of the housing issues that maybe had been brewing in the background, the concerns with evictions. And again, housing work is is a vast amount of what we do at Legal Aid of West Virginia. It's a a big bulk of our work. So I do think the state has developed some programs to help curb that problem. But unfortunately, as we're still in the middle of this pandemic um, with the new variants, especially, I think it's just going to continue to be an ongoing problem that we see and that we continue to try to work on and tackle every day. Through the work of our wonderful attorneys throughout the state. Something else I've, I've really seen is that unfortunately I think our vulnerable populations are even more vulnerable right now during the pandemic. Our veteran population that may be suffering from substance use disorder maybe have some mental health issues that are not being adequately cared for um, and maintained during a pandemic when People are afraid to go to the doctor. It's difficult to get to a doctor right now. The medical system, I think, is overwhelmed. I do have some serious concerns about that veteran population that is under-supported nationwide. We have some really great attorneys working to help support that population, but I do think that right now they've become more vulnerable. I also, on a day-to-day basis, work directly with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, and it's been very concerning to me right now. And really, over the past what almost we're coming up on two years in March, that those survivors are stuck at home more. Um, there's so many additional life stressors: job loss, income instability, housing instability. And I think that my concern is that that's that all of those. Issues are boiling over in homes and leading to an increased amount of violence, violence against partners and violence against children. I haven't seen an increase in DV cases just because I don't think people are able to get out yet and seek that help they need. People are also looking around at their communities and what's happening, and they're feeling like they can't leave right now. It's not a good time to leave. They don't have money saved because they've had to go through that to support their families during the pandemic. Maybe that they can't find employment right now. They don't have the adequate transportation of resources to get to that employment or have childcare, or maybe that they're not going to be able to find stable housing if they were to leave. So again, I think compounding issues here, and while I haven't seen an increase in those cases yet, which I, I anticipate maybe at some point I will, as we kind of try to move out of this pandemic as things get better, I have seen an increase, I think, in the seriousness of the domestic violence cases that I've seen. And again, I think it's the life stressors that the pandemic's causing. If we're looking at, you know, some lethality factors in domestic violence, I think a lot of those boxes, unfortunately, are being checked right now in this really trying time for everybody. And particularly more trying if you are part of a population that faces more hardships already with your housing and your employment. Our population that is dealing with substance use disorder is particularly hard hit right now. And I think that the stressors of job loss, evictions, and housing instability, I think that's also really negatively impacting that population, that's a concern. And as well as we're seeing some unemployment issues people are not able to work or they're being laid off or they're not quite able to get back into the workforce right now. I know that was, a, it was kind of a negative, negative tone here. I'm hopeful though, you know, to make it through this pandemic uh, that we can start to really address some of those issues as we have been this whole time but I anticipate an increase in clients coming to us as they're able to and as we kind of work our way out of this pandemic.
0: I think you make a difference every day to your clients and your colleagues make a difference every day and we need more Courtney's and more legal services providers and more strategies for leveraging those human resources such as Technology and pro bono attorneys. You talk about stressors, whether they're stressors faced by domestic violence victims or uh, stressors faced by opioid use disorder victims and their families. Those stressors are housing, family, employment. Those are the bread and butter of civil legal aid providers. So, I think part of the answer is clearly you, Rebecca. Legal services are needed everywhere, as you well Mm -hmm. know. So, but you've been focusing quite a bit on rural and remote areas. What what led you to such a being such a strong proponent for an LSC Rural Justice Task Force? What do you hope to accomplish?
3: First off, Ron, uh, you and others are always so gracious about talking about my involvement in the Rural Justice Task Force. But I have to note, um, years before the Rural Justice Task Force started, I remember being in an LSC meeting and standing by the lunch table and talking with you about Rural access to justice and how great a task force would be. And certainly my company Ascendium, um, among its uh, foci in the philanthropy area, one is rural. So there's a lot of people who've been energized about this topic a long time. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to give acknowledgement where it's due. For me personally, my initial interest and then now my goals, they've changed a bit and evolved over time. When I got interested in it, it was really thinking about the narrative that had been around access to justice. It's not that rural communities or areas had been intentionally excluded, but it seemed like much of the narrative and the discussion was happening in urban cities by urban service providers and um, really kind of focused on sort of more urban and metropolitan areas where certainly there's a huge need, but I thought it was really important um, just to bring out as part of the story about why access is justice is so important, the impact and the importance of it in rural communities, which makes up such a huge percent of our geography and just the population in the United States. But over the, the course of the last year, year and a half, uh, getting ready for the Rural Justice Task Force, we interviewed uh, well over 50 people. Um, I had the good fortune of being able to participate um, in, and I'd say, the vast majority of those interviews. And just meeting people and hearing the stories and the innovation and the determination and the creativity, um, I really came to realize that rural communities have the answers to a lot of access to justice problems. And I think that really highlighting those stories learning those lessons and then spreading them um, will not only be sort of about bringing attention to the access to justice issue in rural communities. It's really going to be about coming up with solutions that we can use to end the access to justice crisis everywhere, as we really need to do.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. Whitney, we've talked a fair bit about deficits and challenges. What about assets? What are some of the untapped or undervalued strengths in Athens, Tennessee and other rural communities? What should LSE not overlook as we embark on a, a rural learning journey?
1: I think this is a really important question. It's so important to be able to name the needs and the deficits, but it's also like this is how we turn things around is by taking stock of what we know already exists and what the um, expertise and the experiences that could inform um, solutions and, and more flourishing in rural places. And I think right now it's very, it's really interesting. COVID has absolutely, as Courtney said, exacerbated a lot of the challenges that we already faced, but it's also, it also feels like rural is somewhat of a proving ground for, whether or not our democracy can survive. Because I think in rural places and mine, Athens, Tennessee included, I think rural places still have this muscle memory for what it means to gather together and work together in a civic kind of way in the civic commons. You know, we can't, we can't afford to lose that muscle memory because, or our connection um, to one another. Because if we do, then um, then we're even more isolated, then we're even more. Left out in the cold or overlooked, right? So we we've got to keep and continue cultivating this muscle that we have, this practice we have of coming together, you know. So we so we really value our common institutions and we are proud of them, our civic infrastructure, um, because there's usually only one of each of each of these pieces in in rural communities. Like there's only one library, one school system, one baseball field, one courthouse, you know, one main street. So those community assets are super important and it's where a lot of really key conversations are happening still, even in the midst of pandemic and even in the midst of social distancing. I was thinking about the community room at my library, my local library. It's where like all kinds of groups meet all through the week. Um, There's like the knit and purl circles. There's the the forums that we have on important local issues like um, whether or not to raise the sales tax. Um, how to lay more fiber to get it to more homes, um, broadband fiber. Um, We have receptions and parties there. There's a Dungeons and Dragons night. You know, there's just so much happening and there's so much connection and sense of belonging um, in these places. And that is that is an asset you can't buy. You can, you can only just continue to feed it. So I just think, you know, that rural sits at this intersection of where our democracy is right now and where it could go. I think also of my um, local arts center here in Athens. It's, you know, it's where activities for the young and the old, for Republicans, Democrats, for the Baptists and everyone else, like everyone still is able to find something in that space together. So we're kind of bridging these differences that we know we have, but we're doing it through community theater or through an art class. So I find that, you know, a lot of the assets that we have are are, are people assets, relationship assets, civic assets, and rural places instinctively are gravitating toward the commons. So let's let's build on that.
0: My wish for 2022 is that 50,000 people hear your last response. Courtney, going back, I guess at this point, five years, you joined the Lewisburg Office of Legal Aid of West Virginia, and you worked on a project that focused on improving the lives and the stability of children impacted by opioid use disorder. Again, children impacted by opioid use disorder. What was the biggest aha moment for you that summer? What was... A moment where you went, wow, I didn't know that, and this is really important? Being in law school,
2: I think I was very far removed from a lot of the issues that were really impacting our state. So when I got down to Lewisburg, I think I finally realized the very impactful work that I could do just by virtue of going to law school and sitting for the bar. I think throughout my time in law school, I kind of lost sight of exactly what it was I could do and the power that a law degree has to to really help communities um, in a lot of different ways. So when I got down to Lewisburg and I saw really the the impact that substance use disorder was having on the lives of families and therefore those children, I really realized that uh, there was power in the work that we were doing. That office in particular that summer, they served as guardians ad litem for children in child abuse and neglect cases. And I really saw the impactful work that they were doing to ensure stability for those children um, to make their lives better. I also saw that same work through the domestic violence cases um, that impacted families and particularly violence towards children. The infant guardianship cases where we were representing aunts and uncles or grandparents who were seeking guardianship of nieces, nephews, grandchildren. The vast majority of those cases that we saw were because of substance use disorder. So to see the, the boots on the ground work that could be done that is much needed in the community, I think was the biggest moment for me where I realized that this is the reason that I had gone to law school. This is the reason that I had this internship to really get in out into the community and use this degree and this work that I would put in, um, I think, for the good and the betterment of others in the community. And I will say I had a really wonderful experience in Lewisburg. I think it really introduced me to what it's like to be in a rural community um, and the best ways that you can get to know those in the community. I went to the local library probably every week when I was in Lewisburg. I talked to people there. Community groups would meet there. I love to read, so I would check out books, but it was a really great way, I think, to check in with the community, that experience, and I think that summer really kind of led me to where I am now. It was a wonderful experience, and I, um, I'm very grateful for the work that we were able to do for those, those families.
0: And We at LSC are grateful for the work you did then and have been doing for the last five years. Whitney, Courtney's last answer really brings to mind sort of a broader set of questions uh, about people coming into rural areas, rural advocates, small town attorneys speak often about cultural competence and the importance of building trust and, and trust takes time. Uh, you know, I can go somewhere and say, trust me. And, you know, they're going to look me up and down, and, uh, make, try to make a decision, but, you know, trust really is built on authentic, not one-time transactional relationships. What, what advice would you give to a new transplant whether it be a human services provider, a doctor, a lawyer, or, you know, somebody returning home as you did after some time away, how does trust look and feel? How do you cultivate it?
1: Mm, You know, I just want to say, bless your heart, a new person coming into a, a small community that, you know, where relationships have been ongoing for generations and the way we do things, you know, is, is how we've been doing things for generations. And so, you know, bless your heart and, I was thinking of a quote while uh, Courtney was talking about finding her purpose in this work when it's one of my favorite quotes is from theologian James Finley. Um, He says, find your practice and practice it, find your teaching and follow it, find your community and join it. So find your practice, find your teaching, and then find your community and join it. And I think when, when we return to our communities or when we are newbies, in a small town perhaps i think joining in is the is the key piece you come with practice you come with a teaching but you join first and you do that you know by showing up by participating maybe your community has a volunteer opportunity every wednesday at the food pantry you could be doing that you can join one of the civic clubs we still have those kiwanis rotary the lions you can participate in community theater But if you, if you move through the process with an agenda, that will probably take you off the rails. So start showing up without an agenda or an expectation, you know, and of course, listen, listen more, talk less when you're there. And, and I would just say again, back to the bless your heart thing, you may get frustrated at times. Um, you may see ways that this community, us, we could be doing things more efficiently or more strategically, or see that we're missing opportunities, but tread lightly, don't proclaim it, don't, t- don't talk about it all the time, just begin to show and model uh, your practice within the community and your teaching among us. Um, I think being, being part of the community, participation, joining is just um, the, the most powerful way to build trust.
0: Thanks for that. We're gonna try to take your advice uh, to heart and, and keep it in mind as we go forward with our rural justice task force because I believe our intent is not to sort of tell people what they need to do in rural areas to fix things, but to really go around the country as observers and see what's working, see uh, where people are innovating, where people are being helpful to their neighbors, and you know shine a spotlight on those instances and and share them with the rest of the country. The one thing we we do have the power to do is is to convene people and to publicize things. So Rebecca, you've spent the better part of a year talking to people around the country uh, as a precursor to the the work of our task force. Uh, can you tell us about, you know, things uh, that have impressed you and that you'd like to share and I I, you're, you're too humble to start with this, but I, I'm going to ask you to start with your own pilot project to increase justice in rural areas, which is uh, bringing pro bono lawyers to people in technical college, you know, tell us about that and then, you know, share some other examples as well, please.
3: Yeah, the program is called uh, Lawyers for Learners. Uh, we started talking about it about three years ago. The company I work at, Ascendium Education Group, had given out emergency grants to technical college students, and we found if you gave a five or seven hundred dollar grant to somebody who's maybe car broke down or they had a short term childcare issue, the likelihood that that person would stay in school went up by like seventy percent. So it was just a small thing. So so it occurred to me, well, if giving somebody five hundred dollars to fix a broken car helps them stay in school that much. What if you gave them legal help to address issues? So that was kind of the the initial thought. So we opened clinics in Madison and Milwaukee about two Septembers ago. We were going along really well, much better than we ever expected. And then COVID hit, which forced us to really pivot to a virtual model to keep our doors open and ended up being a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways. We'd always hoped to extend out our reach beyond Madison, Milwaukee, to, to rural technical colleges throughout Wisconsin. And this really forced us to start developing the technology and thinking about how we were gonna do that. We've partnered now with technical colleges around the state, including areas in Northern Wisconsin that have been called legal deserts, because again, they, they don't have any, any attorneys or, or legal professionals. And we really use the technical colleges as the boots on the ground champions in these communities. So we'll produce marketing material or other things to do outreach to help people understand the services we provide. We do different sorts of training. So the other week we did a training and um, some folks from Legal Aid Action of Wisconsin presented on new pardon eligibility criteria We had about 40 or 50 people around the state come to it, and then we have a video and they can share it out with their communities. Um, And then we have a central webpage and a central intake form. So folks from schools around the state can fill this out and get connected with a network of attorneys around the state, either for in-person appointments or virtual appointments or hybrid appointments where maybe somebody's sitting in a technical college or their home, if that's more convenient for them, connected with an attorney who may be sitting at a different technical college or maybe sitting in their office in, in Milwaukee. So we've had well over a thousand people reach out for help uh, since we launched, um, and it's been um, a true privilege to be part of that um, project. But as I think about that project and I think about the other... Things I listed just just from the task force. uh, There's a common theme and it really gets back to the pieces Whitney was talking about. They're not really about are you using a fancy latest technology or do you have a fancy app. It's really how do you cultivate and build trust and how do you really honor and respect the communities that you're privileged to be able to serve. I had examples from Georgia and elsewhere <laughs> about how do you reach people? Maybe maybe you can't be there every day, but you want to have a regular presence, so you're really developing um, relationships and connections with people. How do you use non-attorneys, so the librarians and um, the health assistants and the technical colleges and others, to build trust with legal navigators who really have um, the trust and the connection with members of communities and who can help people spot legal issues and then connect them with an attorney? And then really honoring cultures, and I think thinking about some of the the participants from tribal communities and others provide amazing examples of of how uh, people incorporate and really learn from the cultures that they're working to serve, and then actually improve their own services elsewhere. And then finally, um, in South Dakota and elsewhere, um, there's a number of programs really trying to figure out ways to, to um, enhance the attorney pipeline. So we start really getting um, more attorneys um, working and staying in um, communities. So, so again, back to the more Courtney's, which truly uh, we need to uh, end the access to justice crisis.
0: Well, that's a, a great segue to a question for Courtney. Courtney, I recall at this point in history, it seems like about 20 years ago, but it was actually just last January, 2020, you participated in a panel, an LSC uh, access to justice panel in Little Rock. And alongside you was John Asher, who is the executive director of Colorado Legal Services and a longtime legal aid attorney. And John commented that rural communities are, quote, wonderful places to learn to be a lawyer. It's a more civilized practice in a big city. Forced into specialization, you may never have the same lawyer on the other side in your entire career. In a small community, people know about you. How does your experience as a lawyer in Lewisburg and in West Virginia, how, how does it uh, compare to what John was describing?
2: So first of all, let me say, I look back on uh, on that trip to Little Rock fondly. I feel like that was the last big hurrah before COVID. So it was actually really wonderful to have that experience. Thank you again for having me uh, participate in that panel. It was, it was wonderful. And I really, really enjoyed meeting John and all the other panelists. What I will say is, uh, I think that what John said is, is really spot on for what my experience has been. I think that that learning the practice of law in a small community. So starting out in Lewisburg and then in the other rural communities that I now serve has really taught me civility. I work with the same attorneys over and over again. You don't want to develop a reputation as someone that is overly difficult, that is unreasonable? That doesn't show up on time? Is it prepared? So I do think that that has made me very conscious about the way that I practice law and the way that I interact with with other attorneys. Not only that, though, I think it's made me conscious of, of how I interact with my community as a whole. Part of being, I think, a legal aid attorney is, is getting out there and making sure the community knows that we are there, um, that we are present, and that we want to help address issues. So part of that means, I think, getting out of that community, um, being visible. Sometimes my office does things like we'll serve food to the homeless. We'll go out to different community events. If there's a parade, we'll set up and maybe hand out hot chocolate or have pamphlets about the work that we do. And I think that really you know, increases visibility and gets the word out there that we're there to help I think it also is, is a huge benefit in that I see a number of legal issues. So even though I serve that, that primary uh, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, that's that population, this past year alone, I've tackled everything from informal housing issues and going to those hearings to unemployment cases, in addition to the protective orders and the custody cases and divorce cases. So I think it's it's really an opportunity as a young attorney to experience so many different areas of law. And I think that's important because, you know, when you're in law school, you don't necessarily realize that when you get out and start practicing, all the different things that you do or the different issues that come to you are so interconnected for people. So I think it's important to have that understanding. I may represent somebody in a custody case, but that custody case and the outcome is going to impact their public benefits or their housing. So I think it's so important to really gain that knowledge in a lot of different areas and really also practice a holistic approach to law. People come to us and they have a legal issue, but they also have, may have several other issues they don't, they don't recognize as legal issues. So I think working in a small community has enabled me to, to kind of hone those skills and learn those things early on in my practice, which I think has been really wonderful. And I would highly encourage other young attorneys to get out there. It's, it's a great place to learn how to practice and to start your career
0: from your mouth to the ears of uh, every law student in America. Rebecca, final word, what makes you feel hopeful about shrinking the justice gap, especially in rural communities?
3: It's really the people I've met working on this issue. I mean, including Whitney and Courtney and you right here today on this panel. There is such dedication and um, commitment and intelligence and heart being thrown at this issue that I think if there's gonna be any solution to the access to justice gap, it's that.
0: Well, let me echo what uh, Rebecca just said uh, to Whitney Kimball Coe and Courtney Cluse and Rebecca Rapp. Thank you for being with us today, but more importantly, thank you for the work you're doing every day. It really does give me hope. Thank you. Everybody stay well. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.